And we announced to them something that some of you have heard on the wind. 35 years ago, we walked through those doors, and I remember a lady making a beeline towards me, and I thought, what in the world does she want? Nancy Buffington. She was a force to be reckoned with. Nothing was going to stop her. And she had this prophetic word. She put her finger right on my chest, and she said, man of God, God has called you here, and do not go until he releases you. And so Sandy and I have stuck in here. We've served, and we've we worked really hard with Steve and Midge, and it was just, it's been an awesome experience. But it's time for us, God is releasing us to pass the baton to the next generation. We want to start the process of succession. Think in terms of a track and a marathon, 400-meter relay where you're passing the baton. There is a moment of time when you're running and you pass and the person in front of you grabs and there's a point where you run together until you release the baton. And we feel that God is calling us. We had a really awesome prophetic word that it's time to not resign, but to be reassigned. And we will always serve Jesus with all of our heart for all of our lives. That has been our passion. We have worked in ministry side by side for over 40 some years in many different capacities in many different ways. So we know that God has great plans for us. But listen, we are not going anywhere. What did you hear me say? <laughs> we are not going anywhere. God has not called us to sell our home and tell our kids and tell our family, tell our community goodbye. That's not what God has called us to do. But God has called us to step back and let a next generation take their place as we move into his story. Amen? Amen? Yeah. And that's our heart. So in terms of what this looks like, it's a journey. We have some people coming on the horizon that may or may not want to be part of this body. We're going to search hard. This team, we will work together to make sure who we bring in or who we raise up is really prepared to lead the next generation into the future. It will not be easy. It will not be easy. They will need support from you and from this amazing team and from us as well. Our heart is to come alongside and help them succeed. This has never been about Sandy and I. Never. We have never been here because we feel like this is our purpose. It was for a moment, but we feel God has so much more. This has really been about us, you guys, us, this leadership team. This is what this journey for us has been all about, about you. That's our heart and that's our passion. We have always desired to create a place and a space for others to grow up and to step into what God has called them to. This goes the same for the school. Sandy, I principled the school for years. She really, ran the, she really ran the school. But hey, she stepped up and she became the principal. And, and then she stepped back into administrative things. The school has just exploded off the charts. And so we are searching the horizon. She stepped back. Matt Bender has come on as principal. Matt's doing a stellar job. But... But we're still going to need people. And Sandy's not going anywhere. Nobody's dropping the ball. She wants to help train someone to take her position. It may take 12 people. I'm just saying for a friend. Because as the time has gone over 30 years of being here, the handbook went from this to 
novels like that. Thank you, somebody up in Salem. Anyhow. But we're excited. We're excited about new life coming in and, 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 a, and a younger generation stepping in and having the zeal and the desire. We want to serve Jesus and be able to climb the mountains like the sound of music. We don't want to be, no offense, but we don't want to be in a walker starting that journey. We want to be running with the big dogs. And so we think it's time and it's appropriate. So with that, I just want to say we want to be transparent. You want to say anything? You've got good things to say, sweetheart. Well, we, we love it here, and this is home for us, and we definitely are not going anywhere, but we do feel like we do want to train and help raise up the next generation. Um, it, the school is more than fun. Um, I hope I get to stay there in a less... Um, responsible position and I can just do recesses and play with the kids. So <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to. That's good. Thanks guys. Well maybe you should pray over us. <laughs> Again, we are not going anywhere. So if that rumor starts, you guys squelch it right then and there. We are not going anywhere. Our address is not changed. The only thing that may change in the future is where our offices are. Mine will be at my home, but we're still going to be part of, huge part of what's going on here. Amen? Yeah, I remember <laughs> when uh, Doug and Sandy took the helm after uh, Steve moved on. Uh, he made it quite clear that he did not feel this was his long-term calling place. Many of you, of you probably remember that. That he was not disillusional. He he knew quite well that this was a, a time, a season that was going to last for a season, and then was, they were going to move on. So this is not a big shock to a lot of us, especially in the leadership. And I don't want to scare you guys, you know, because I don't know about you, but it's been really fun having Doug and Sandy leading here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know they've they've hit hard issues and had to deal with pandemics and all that malarkey that was just over the top. And they had to pastor through all of that. Very, very, very difficult. And as, as he shared, many churches did not survive through that time. And I look around here and I go, we not only survived, we thrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of it is because they kept their heart in the game. They kept their head in the game and they knew who they were and what their calling was. So, again, they're not leaving tomorrow, so don't, don't go telling everybody, hey, Doug and Sandy are leaving. That's not happening just yet. <laughs> well, as far as the time frame, we, that's in the Lord's hands. We want it known that we're starting the journey, and we are looking on the horizon. I, don't, I can't say with full confidence we have family A, B, or C. We have people that want to come visit and check it out, um, but uh, we'll cross those bridges as we go. Our heart is that we put this in the hands of very capable people. This, this church is more than just running the church end of it. There's the school, and they're integrated, and it's very complex at times. So it needs someone who really understands systems and also has a power and a passion to teach the furtherance of the things of God. 
And we want people who are kingdom-minded. And, and we're looking on the horizon. So just keep that open, okay? So if you would, I, I would encourage you to stand right now and just to, to honor these two and extend a hand. And uh, we want to bless them and whatever the days ahead look like. God, we just commit to you, Doug and Sandy, whether they're here short or long, whatever the plan is, we look forward to the journey together yes, with yes, them. Yes, thank you, God. And all the changes that might come our way, we embrace them now, knowing that you are the one who guides. Like uh, shifting waters, you move a king's heart and you can move a congregation's heart. And we give ourselves to that, Lord, and we just say, yes, have your way here, Lord. Have your way in this house. This is not ours, although we're a part of it. This is your house. Right, right. And Doug and Sandy are yours. And we commit to them the leading of your Holy Spirit. And we know that you will guide and give them wisdom. Yeah, and I thank you for the other leaders here that they have the yes, heart and yes. the discernment thank to know. Uh, like the sons of Issachar who understood the times and know what Israel should do. I know that there's men and women here in this home that are like that and can see and read the times. Mm. God, I pray that you'd quit. Can you continue to equip us and guide us in all the decisions we make moving forward from this day? In this. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <coughs> I want to start by saying that uh, after Teresa and Rose shared, this is a tough, this is tough. Off the charts, sisters, well done. You know, it's at this time of the year, the beginning of the year, people typically will ask me, what are you seeing on the horizon? What is that prophetic, prophetic bent in you seeing on the horizon? And I shared this not too long ago, but I will not and do not want to give in to dire predictions. I do not want to listen to or hear all of these things out there that are wonky and weird. What I want to see is revival. And I believe that revival can come to this land if we get some things squared away. I think 2024 could be a tremendous year of revival if, if we do our part. You know, recently I was reminded uh, again about the importance of repentance. Repentance, I think, is one of the most misunderstood things that are taught out of the scriptures. I truly believe that. And for the next week or so, I want to endeavor to line some ducks up, so to speak, so that we can see that repentance has a process. And, and, and repentance, I believe with all my heart, is a precursor to freedom. That repentance is a precursor to freedom from bondage and freedom from oppression, which ultimately leads us to a place of revival. That's what the Word of God says. And I do believe that, and I wrote here this morning, this thought came to me, that true repentance is the thread that starts with humility. And it pulls towards 
us towards a deeper desire and a passion to want to seek God's face with all of our heart. It, it, it repentance pulls us towards wanting to turn away from our wicked ways. I see deliverance and healing coming after repentance, which brings and sparks revival, which will bring healing to our land. This is the moment. This is the hour for us to do just that. Second Chronicles 7.14, we've heard this many, many times, but I want to tell you, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, there's deeper context here because Solomon, who had just finished building the Lord's temple, David was not allowed to, but his son Solomon was allowed to finish what David had stocked up and prepared for. So Solomon builds the temple. It is incredibly beautiful. Read, read, read 2 Chronicles and, and just start at the beginning, and you'll see how ornate and how beautiful it was. And sidebar note, there's like a guy named, and I'll just say Bill, Bill built this. You imagine having your name written in the book because you built something for the temple of the Lord? That's powerful. Second Chronicles is not a formula, though. I believe that Second Chronicles is an active attitude. It's an active attitude that should be producing good fruit in our lives. So really, the fruit in our lives is really a gauge of where we are at in the process of repentance. Are our lives producing the fruit that we desire? Got quiet in here. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to go through verses 8 through 11. Corinthians, Corinthians. Yeah, they're close, aren't they? First and 2 Corinthians are beautiful books. 1 Corinthians, I mean, we talk about the love letters and all the cool things. Paul was setting them up, telling them how they should be doing church and all that. But there is an undercurrent in 1 and 2 Corinthians, if you didn't notice it. Paul actually wrote three letters to Corinth, to the Christians in Corinth, the Corinthians. He wrote three letters to them. And in there, he was really rebuking them for some stuff that had gone awry. There had been a lot of abuse within the church, and Paul was addressing these issues. And he's weaving it throughout, throughout these, this letter. And, 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 and he knows that there's divisions and there's factions. There's church. There's religion. Stuff's going on, and it's not good. And it's really causing the Corinthian church to, to have a bad name. And Paul addresses that. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is Paul's last letter, and it reads like this. He is hammering down on truth. How many of you have spoken the truth to somebody in love? You stepped out on a limb, you spoke the truth in love, and it really, really was not fun. Yeah. yeah. It's not fun. But Paul knew he had a responsibility, and he stepped up to the plate, he swung for the fences, he addressed, he, he addressed the issues of the heart, the things that were going on, and here's what he wrote. Even if I caused you sorrow, I'm reading out of the NIV, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. 
Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became, for you became sorrowful as God intended, so we were not harmed in any way, so, and so you, we were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Wow. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? This is incredible. This, this, you could preach an entire sermon just on verse 11. See what this godly sorrow, godly sorrow, it's important we understand, godly sorrow produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that, bef that before God, you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. See for yourselves how devoted you are uh, to us. All of this, by all of this, we are encouraged. Interesting. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. This is something I want to hammer just for a moment this morning. And, and understand this, that the world wants nothing to do with sorrow. In fact, the world will spend billions of dollars drowning out their sorrow with music, with busyness, with therapists, with medication, with entertainment. Am I right? It's so quiet in here. There is a maximum that says, if it makes me sad, it must be bad. And really, that is a fundamental principle to which a lot of us adhere to by default. If it makes me sad, it must be bad. But sorrow, the right kind of sorrow, godly sorrow, I believe, can be beneficial. It's not always a bad thing. Godly sorrow is not always a bad thing. Paul writes to the Corinthians here that though he initially did, he does not now regret having caused them sorrow. Why? Because they were made sorrowful to the point of repentance according to the will of God. In other words, the truth that Paul shared brought them back, turned them around and brought them back to God. That's what repentance literally means, to turn around. But it gets much bigger than that. We'll go a lot deeper next week. So verse 9, this verse makes clear that there is a kind of sorrow that is according to the will of God. That's what the word says. There is a sorrow that God wants you to experience, I wrote, because the sorrow that is according to the will of God re, re, uh, produces a repentance without regret that leads us to salvation, deliverance, freedom. Paul is teaching the Corinthians that, it's, that, that an essential component of true repentance is a genuine sorrow, I wrote, over having grieved God and belittled His holiness. 
Yeah, that is ouch. So godly sorrow. The person who is truly repentant is not unmoved by their sin as if it meant nothing at all. It's not like they went, hey, you know, uh, God, I'm sorry I broke covenant with you. I was a stinker. I did all this. So sorry. Thank you for your amazing grace. I'm going to dance and sing all the way down the hall as I go. And I think that attitude and that posture is what causes a lot of people to keep cycling through the same issue of the heart. They haven't had that godly sorrow moment that produced repentance. They're just like, woohoo! Singing in the halls. Sorry. You sin against somebody. Sorry. It's so easy just to say, sorry. I wrote here, no, if you are truly repentant, you apprehend the offense your sin is to God. Apprehend means to capture it. You go after it. You seize it. You detain it. You wrestle it to the ground and say, stop it. You're not going any farther. That's when your spirit is big enough to take your soul to the table and just do the smackdown. And your spirit who's connected to God should be able to say, soul, stop it. Stop it. Settle down. Take this thing to the ground. Let's deal with it here and now because I don't want to go back to the altar time and time and time again for the very same thing. When you understand that you have sinned against that glorious God, the only, only proper response is godly sorrow. It's to have that broken spirit and that contrite heart. It's in that moment, James 4 says, but he gives us more grace. He says that this is why the scripture says, Jesus himself said, God opposes, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In that moment, when you realize I have sinned against God, I have sinned against my brother or my sister, stop. Let's deal with this right now. If we have to, we're going to wrestle with this all night long, but we're going to humble ourselves and admit that we blew it, and we're going to deal with it right there at that moment. One of the, one of the coolest things I ever heard was from a brother named uh, uh, Gerald Shears, I believe was his last name, but he was, he was head of the full gospel businessmen, uh, and he was 300 years old, <laughs> sweetheart of a brother. He had eyebrows out to here and just looked like tons of wisdom. And I remember one time this question got asked. I don't even remember the actual part of the question, but I remember his comment was, my wife, oh, it was, what was the, succe su the success to his 300 years of marriage? I mean, this guy had been married for years. And he said, it, he said that's quite easy. He said, my wife and I, when we sit down at night, before we go to bed, we sit there and we talk about, is there anything I did today that offended you? He said, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your sin. Because the next day you get up, the enemy will be, begin speaking to you, and you're going to begin to think, oh, that wasn't no big deal. It's all right. I can move on. It's okay. And pretty soon it's forgotten, and we walk away from it. But it's still tugging at us. It's still gnawing at our heart. Paul makes it clear that godly sorrow, godly sorrow, is God-intended, and it's a God-intended feeling that moves us back to the heart of God. Are, are you guys hearing this? 
Our repentance is not the work of the flesh, but it really is a result of God's Spirit stirring our conscience. It's interesting to note that Peter had godly sorrow for his denial of Christ, didn't he? He had sorrow. It broke his heart. It said he wept bitterly. Can you imagine walking with Jesus, seeing all the things that he did, including helping you get out of the water as you were falling in it, and then denying him three times? Jesus said he would do it, and Paul's like, no, not me. I am the I can, I'm going to do And it happened. It had to have been the darkest night of the soul for him. You imagine he probably took his football or fishing pole or net and went back to the river and sat there on the edge of the boat and just went, what did I just do? Weeping bitterly. But it says that he had a kind of sorrow because later we find out it eventually leads him back to a complete healing. On the other hand, you have Judas. What did his sorrow lead him to? Yeah. Yeah, it led him to the unspeakable. He took his own life. So, so I wrote here, but sorrow is not always beneficial. While those who are genuinely repentant will experience sorrow over their sin, sorrow itself is not repentance. Just because you're sorry doesn't mean you've repented. I put there is a kind of sorrow over sin that does not produce repentance and therefore does not lead us to salvation. And Paul addresses this very issue when he says that this kind of sorrow is the sorrow of the world, which produces death. The chief characteristic of, uh, of worldly sorrow is that it is fundamentally self-centered. World, worldly or world sorrow is self-centered. Worldly sorrow it, it, it revolves around the pain that sin causes oneself. This is worldly sorrow. It, it's, it's when we move into this place of self-pity. It's when we move into this place of, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry over the consequences that my choices brought me. But nothing changes. It does not produce good fruit. It does not turn us and drive us back to God. If anything, it causes us to go our own way. People I've noticed over the years that people who are, are, are and do walk in worldly sorrow are often really defensive. They're really defensive about um, their sin, and they tend to justify and explain it away. Whereas godly sorrow, godly sorrow, on the other hand, causes you to own your sin. It causes you to take your sin, take it to the mat, and say, we're going to deal with this now and get it over with. I want peace in my home. I want peace with my brothers and sisters. Let's deal with this right now. And you know, you know you're experiencing worldly sorrow when you're grieving for yourself and only for yourself, for the embarrassment that you're suffering, and maybe the pain that you're feeling. Rather than mourning over the grief that you've caused and you've brought to the Holy Spirit, mm, you're grieving for yourself. You're really not sorry about what you did towards God and His ways. Does that make sense? That is worldly sorrow. One of the clearest examples, I believe, of, uh, that the Scripture gives us of worldly sorrows is the story of Judas. You know, it's said that Judas felt remorse for betraying Christ. It says that he suddenly realized, oh, 
I'm going to take this money back and I'm going to throw these 30 pieces of silver at, at, at the priests and the elders. And he does just that. So he felt remorse. He felt sorrowful. He felt that thing in his heart stirring up. And, 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 and he openly confessed in Matthew 7, 27, 3, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew he blew it. He knew that he had sinned. He knew that he had done wrong. But at this point, you can really look at Judas's actions, and they're nearly indistinguishable from genuine repentance. Because one, he confessed his sin. Two, he felt remorse. And three, it actually, he had a change of course. Change of direction. I could better go make this right. But ultimately, we learn in this story that this was not godly sorrow, which would lead to repentance, but was a worldly sorrow that produced death. How do we know that? Because we know that when he went to the chief priests and the elders, they wouldn't take it. He threw the gold right at them, and what did the silver, and what did he do? He went out, and he took his own blood. He tried to atone for his own guilt, his own sins with his own blood by taking his own life. That's what worldly sorrow produces. And I, again, I see a lot of people cycling into this cycle where they keep coming back to that same point and they're beating themselves down and they're falling into despair and they feel whooped. How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So if Judas was mourning over the offense he had committed against the Son of God, if his grief was fundamentally God-centered, his response would have looked much different. Truly would have looked much different. For I wrote here, he knew from walking with Christ for more than three years that he could have found forgiveness in Jesus. He could have gone, gone to He had watched Jesus forgive. He had watched Jesus heal. He had watched Jesus walk on water. So he knew it was possible. He knew, that, he knew that Jesus came and he died for liars and traitors just like him. And he saw people healed in time and time and time again of these very issues of the heart. But Jesus, that doesn't seem to be Judas's concern. His grief, again, was fundamentally self-centered. He could not bear the shame. He could not bear the humiliation of having betrayed the Son of God. And rather than bringing that shame to the Savior, who definitely could pay for it, who definitely could heal him from it, he sought to atone for his own sins by taking his own life. That is such a sad, sad, sad ending. So worldly sorrow produces death. Godly sorrow produces death repentance. Worldly sorrow has this ability to cause you to focus on how terrible of a sinner you are. And rather than, and rather than you giving in to how gracious of a Savior we have, you just say, I'm no good. I am worthless. Shame is such an ugly, ugly spirit that attacks us at every point. So, so the instinct of worldly sorrow, if I was to sum this part up, is that we try to atone for sin by brooding over it. We, we, we feel so bad for ourselves that we end up winding ourselves into the ground in a place of despair, feeling there's no way out. There's no help for me. 
I'm done. I'm cooked. I might as well just go kick the can, take my football, and disappear. That's a lie. That is such a lie. But the instinct I wrote of godly sorrow is to run to the cross of Christ, where the only atonement for sin was made. That's the place we need to be. So, in this coming season, I want to see us really process through the process of repentance. I want us to be able to be a people who really walk forward and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want people, when they experience us, they can pick and pluck good fruit. I want us to be like the people that are planted along a river. It talks about in Psalms. The people can come along and partake of the fruit that is so good. So is your low-hanging fruit good? Are the people like, ooh, that's bitter. That's terrible. I'm not here to judge you on that, but it's something we need to consider. And you know, Jesus, before he came on the scene, before he came preaching the good news of the kingdom, before he came healing the sick and casting out demons, there was a man named John who prepared the way. And John preached a gospel of repentance. He called the people to return to true repentance, to turn from their sin and to turn back to God. He called them to change their mind. That's what repentance means, about sin. He called them to break their agreement with it and to bear fruit that demonstrated genuine repentance. I want us to be those people. Jesus, by the time Jesus launched his ministry, I wrote, a wave of repentance, a wave of revival had come through Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, through the ministry of John. And that's just, that's out of the book of Matthew. That's just a simple read into it. That's so easy to see that. Jesus continued in this vein of preaching in Matthew 4, 17, because he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to bring deliverance, but before deliverance came repentance. Everybody wants to be delivered. Everybody wants to be healed. But do we really want genuine repentance? Do we really want to lay it all on the line? Do we really want to wrestle that thing that we've been fighting to the ground? and say, it stops here, it stops now. Generational curses and things, are just this sin nature keeps going on and on. It can be broken. My, my father was, for me, was one of my greatest heroes, not only because he's my father, but because he was a tremendous man. My father had a third grade education. He was a very simple man. But at the end of the day, he loved God. But know this, his father beat the bejeebers out of him. My dad was so whipped by his father and beat. My grandfather would take two. My grandfather would go crazy. He was diabetic. People didn't know it. He drank liquor like crazy. He just went crazy. He owned an auto shop. And my uncle said, if your dad brought him the wrong wrench, your dad would literally hit him with it. He said, why he picked on your father? I don't know. But my dad, growing up, he would share. He would always put my sister and I in this place that you can do it. You can do better than me. And one day I asked him, I said, Dad, I said, how come you never laid a hand on us like Grandpa did you? And you know what he said? He said, it stopped with me. 
He said, I realized I could stop that sin. I could stop that, and it stopped with me. That's why I chose to not ever, ever, ever lay a hand on you kids. We can stop this, guys. There's so much stuff spinning right now around us. There's a cacophony of issues. There's things going on. We can stop it if we say we've had enough and it stops now. But we better make sure our hearts are pure and clean before a holy God. I wrote here, the same was true when we talk about repent for the deliverance, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how, how, how Jesus came again to bring deliverance, but that came before uh, uh, deliverance, excuse me, but before deliverance, I wrote came repentance. Okay. I wrote the same is true when Jesus sent out the 12. So they went out, this is out of Mark 6, 12 and 13. So they went out and preached that the people should repent and they cast out many demons. For first there was repentance and then there was deliverance. And then if you notice and read the word, then there was revival in the land. Interesting to note that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees went out to observe the ministry of John, this is interesting. He recognized, John the Baptist recognized them for who they were. They were religious imposters. John confronted their hypocrisy with these harsh words. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, he called them out on their stuff. He said, you brood of vipers. And then he says this interesting statement. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, period, unquote. John is scolding him. And then John raises this rhetorical question. It's like saying, who warned the devil that he needed to repent? That's what he was saying to them. And then verse 9, And do not think that you say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. And I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Here, John, uh, John is addressing the fact that, that many of the Jews thought that their salvation was automatic because of their nationality. I'm an American, therefore I am a Christian. It's not how it works. John insists that without repentance, John insists that without repentance, they will not taste the fruit of salvation. Man, he also infers that God is willing to give outsiders outside the direct line of Abraham, the promise, if they do not repent. And he ultimately does that. We see the Gentiles later, they're given full access to the things of God. They're grafted in. That's why we're here today. Amen? Verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I believe that we're moving into a season that God is going to do some serious pruning. This isn't a dire prediction. This is just the reality of the truth of God's word. That if we're not producing good fruit, God's going to clip it. He's going to take out all the dead stuff. And that's probably not very fun 
If you've ever been pruned by the Lord, it's not fun. It can be quite painful. So, in preparation for the coming of Jesus, John preached again this baptism of repentance. Matthew 3.11, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We read in Acts 19, 4, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repentance is a big deal. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So, Repentance really does embody this radical change. It's a radical change of mind and direction. It's a turning away from sin and yourself and turning to God and leaning into Him for total reliance. That's what true repentance is. Genuine, true repentance is the first step towards salvation because without it, there is no way to respond to the good news of salvation in Jesus and enter into the family of God. We must repent. That's the word. I'll just a couple more scriptures. I'll wrap this up for today. But Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. You want your sins wiped out? Yeah, you need to be turning to God. That at times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There's an interesting point that, that John makes here in Matthew when he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Well, I will tell you next week. It's a cliffhanger. (laughs) I will sell you my notes for 1995. No, I'm just just kidding. And that will be my point. I want to go on and hit on next week. It's it's Ronan. You guys have been very generous this morning. uh, But God wants us to be producing good fruit. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I want you guys to look that up. I want you guys to research that. What does it mean? What does it mean to bear good fruit? What does it mean to bear good fruit that keeps our keeping with repentance? What does that mean? Amen? So let's stand. My heart and my passion here, guys, is I want to see us break that cycle. H- how many of us have cycled many times through a particular issue of the heart? Yeah, and, and, and it's like, Father, I bring it to you, I bring it to you. But here's one of the challenges is we have a tendency to want to take it back. And, and Jesus is coming after and says, oh, stop, 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 stop. You gave that to me. You told me to take care of it. You laid it at my feet, and now you're taking it back? That's not repentance. 
We're going to really dig deep into this, and I'm pretty excited about it. So, Father, we just thank you for this moment. Wow. Father, if anything, I pray that we could leave here today with a deeper understanding of what godly sorrow is, how it brings forth repentance, how it leads us to salvation, how it delivers us from those things that are holding us back, keeping us down. Father, we want to live with no regret. We want to be able to move into this future, God. Bells are ringing. We want to be bright, on our toes, sharp, and not led astray by any demonic spirits, anything going on, God. We want to remain tight with you. So, Father, I pray, too, that we could begin a journey of breaking this sin cycle that a lot of us experience. Wow. So, Father, I just pray that you would continue to answer the cry's heart, uh, heart cry of everyone in this room. I know there's issues in here that uh, people are struggling with and, and probably having a hard time even hearing what I'm saying. Father, I pray that you'd give them ears to be able to hear. Thank you, Jesus. I want to do something this morning um, for a moment. And this has been on my heart. It came to me the other day. And <clears throat> that is, this generation that we have today, this young generation, is one of the first generations in our history that I can remember that has no desire to rebel. Now, I'm speaking in general terms because there are mixed in with that that lot, a remnant of young hearts that are afire. But for the most part, this young generation is content to stay home. They're content to just stare at their screens. They're content to just get sucked into social media. They don't want to go out and raise a ferruckus because they're afraid that they'll offend their, I'll say it, influencers. And if this young generation doesn't get up and arise... Who's going to go? Who's going to go? This isn't a dire prediction. It's just a reality. But having said that, God has highlighted someone to me. There's others, but one in particular is really highlighted to me. And, and, and I'd like to call that person out for a moment. And I hope it's okay with that person. But Hunter, would you come up here? I don't know a whole lot about you, but I've watched you for a while. And there is a calling on your life because I watch you as others are watching you. So there's a leader in here, and I want you, my friend, to learn to lead well. But you're going to have to spend time at the feet of Jesus and hear his heart and hear his, his desire for you and you alone. And I think if, if you can do that, if you can humble yourself, spend time at the cross, spend time in the word, hear his heart, that God's going to raise you up and you're going to begin to become a voice that people will hear above all the other voices. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, could I get the elders up here and... Newton, Deanne, I think you're part of this. Come on up. Annalise, come on up. You guys are part of this, too. Yeah, they are. In fact, any other young people in here, I'd like you to come up. 
I'd like you to come up because this has a trickle-down effect. Thank you. Come on up. Wow. I'm going to jump up on the stage so I can see everybody. I'm just too short anymore. Wow. Wow. Max, you got anything? You got to, do you have anything on your heart? Here. Yeah. Well, it was kind of interesting. Uh, I didn't know what was going to happen here this morning, but uh, as Hunter came into the building this morning and sat down, for some reason God highlighted me and I went, hmm, what are you saying, Lord? So it's interesting that Doug called him out this morning. I, I feel the Spirit is definitely uh, confirming something yeah. that's in you, Hunter, that you're not fully aware of yet, yeah. and that's okay. But there is an anointing, there is a calling on your life that's going to begin to blossom. And we just release that. Yes. We release that. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. We release that. That radical spirit, that radical perception is able to look past the smoke, the deception, the confusion, the lies, and say, no, this is the truth. This is what's real. This is what matters. Yes. And call out people and say, you were created in the image of God. Mm. And it's time to rise to that. Yes. We release you to do that. Father, we do thank you for the gift that all of these young and tender hearts are to this tribe. And Father, I think of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, Lord, how you chose those young hearts and you made them stand above and beyond their contemporaries. And Father, I just pray for every heart in this room, every young and tender heart, that they would catch the fire of your presence, God, that they would become those signs that make people wonder and they would step out and move beyond what everyone around them is doing and let them stand out in such a way that they become the signposts that point the way. Father, I pray for protection. I pray for clarity. I pray that you would free their minds from anything that would entangle them. And Father, that when they rise up in the morning, they'd be full on, full in tune with you and your spirit, God. Wow, thank you, Lord. Mm. Wow. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> it's Clyde here. <laughs> so Hunter's been working for me for since August, and he's just been an incredible worker. And um, this morning we kind of had a, a work talk. I felt a little bit uncomfortable at church talking to you about work on a Sunday, but um, it's okay if I talk about this. But anyways, uh, he was due for a raise. <laughs> And so I just feel that, you know, first in the natural, then in the spirit, that um, it's just, it's the Sunday of raises. That's that, a good word. Yeah. <laughs> that um, God, he sees us. He sees what we do, you know. He's, he sees, he watches, he looks, and, and he praises, and he admonishes, and he gives raises. And I just think, uh, Hunter, that... Um, I mean, I know you personally, and you're an awesome young man. 
Um, but we talked about future things, and Bible college is still in the future, and and uh, I'm just I just appreciate you so much. Um, you're not wishy-washy. You're you're yes, and you're going to follow through, and um, so because good. you're seeking the Lord. So good. And in a in a generation, it's hard to get any length of commitment. You're one um, that have committed to your word, and I just say thank you for that. And I know many others are appreciative as well. Um, but we can learn from, from you. Yeah. As far as just saying, yes, Lord, here I am. And um, I just want to acknowledge that. And when we do that, as a positioning our heart, he will give us raises and bonuses, I believe, in the spirit and in the natural. I believe that. So thank you, Hunter. Appreciate you. And all the young men and your friends and women here, all these um, youth up here, just remember that. Yes. Commit your ways to the Lord. And he will give increase. Amen. 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 <clears throat> um, elders, just stay up here for a second. Leaders. I just want to open it up for a moment. Um, if anyone here needs healing, you need a touch from the Lord, the word says call upon the elders, the leaders. They're here. Uh, so I encourage you, if, if you want prayer for healing, if you want prayer for an illness, if you want prayer for spiritual, physical things, whatever that may be, come. And they would love to pray over you and pray with you. Amen? Amen. So having said that, God bless you. Have a great day. If you want to pick up a few chairs to help, that'd be sweet. But come on up because these guys want to pray for you. <laughs>